I would just take my credit card and swipe it up a storm, charging up a storm, just assuming that I had the money to pay for it. And, and that's really part of the exercise here for anybody that's willing to roll up their sleeves and dive into this is you actually have to take the time and see where you're at. You just can't categorically assume there's always going to be enough. I had a person recently in my office who said, I make $26,000 a month net after taxes. And at the end of the month, I'm always somewhere around zero. I have no idea where it goes. I mean, that the first time Glenn said to me, we're going to build a balance sheet for you and Amy. It was oh like, my- a, did you think it was like a teeter-totter? Oh, I thought he slammed me in the head with a two-by-four. That was one of the, the most painful, overwhelming things to think about, that I would have to go through this exercise of creating a balance sheet for my family. But- what I learned is that as big and intimidating as that sounded, it was really quite a, a simple exercise. Welcome to Your Financial Sobriety, a podcast that challenges conventional beliefs about money and life. There are three relationships in life that really matter our relationship with people our relationship with ourselves, and our relationship with money. And they're all tied very closely to one another. If you've ever struggled with any of these relationships at any point in your life, then you're in the right place. I'm Matthew Grishman, co-founder of Gebhardt Group. We're a private wealth management firm headquartered just outside San Francisco, California. I'm joined by my business partner and BFF, Jim Gebhardt. Hello. He's the guy who got this party started when he opened the doors of our firm back in 2005. Jim and I created Your Financial Sobriety because we want to help a lot of people. We're on a mission to become the most disruptive money influencers of our time. If after listening today, you're able to take one step closer to keeping your money more aligned with the people, places, and experiences that mean the most to you, then Jim and I just got one step closer to accomplishing our mission. I love this. This is so awesome. And the reason I'm kind of feeling that love today is an email that we got over the weekend from a friend of mine that read the book. And it's so impactful on this disruptor, this money disruptor concept, right? There's so few people out there talking about money the way that we're talking about money. This show, very quickly, if you haven't listened to an episode, this isn't going to talk about the SECURE Act. We're not going to talk about Roth IRAs and 401k limits and all this stuff. At least not yet. Not yet. We've got only another couple hundred episodes before we'll know. Yeah, we, we got some unpacking to do first. We've absolutely got some unpacking. And this podcast up to this point has been very sequential. If you haven't listened to this before, we're going to recommend you go back to the very first episode and start with that. Yeah, that's that's where we really unpacked what this whole thing's all about, where financial sobriety came from, the journey that you and I both took to kind of get together and create this concept, not just for our clients, but for a bigger audience. We also talked a little bit about the overall agenda and what the different modules are going to look like mm-hmm. as we unpack these kind of three key relationships in our lives. Now, if you've read the book, if you've read Financial Sobriety, the book, the book starts by talking about this relationship with self. Then the book gets into the relationship we have with people and then ultimately gets into the relationship with money. We've decided on purpose to kind of reverse the order of the conversation for the benefit of the podcast where we're diving into this relationship with money first. Why would we do that? Well, it's the easier one to talk about. It's familiar. 
it's a little easier to unpack than getting right into what the core of financial sobriety is really all about, which cue the Darth Vader theme song. Yeah, exactly. It, you know, where where we're really getting into some of those relationships with the person staring back at us in the mirror and the people in our lives. Those are those are challenging conversations to have. So we're kind of warming things up a little bit by talking about the money piece first, if that makes sense. And in our last episode, we laid the foundation, right? I come from a construction family. So we laid the foundation with the four cornerstones, what we call wealth formation, the wealth formation experience at Gebhardt Group is about family. Who are those people that give you energy? Who are the people that you want to spend your time with? They may be blood relatives. They may not be blood relatives. Occupation. How do you give your gifts, talents, and unique abilities to the world and the greater community that you live in? Yeah, it's a fancy way of saying, why do your feet hit the floor every day? Why do your feet hit the floor? R for recreation, or as my mother would often say, a little R&R is good for you. (laughs) Uh, How do you have fun? What activities give you energy? And how do you bring laughter into your life? So recreation is a really important part of this whole process. And money, but not how much do you have. What is it about money? It's your relationship with money. And that was really the, the beginning of what we did in the last episode. We started with this idea of taking an inventory. The only way that we're going to be able to strengthen the relationship with money, or in, or in my case, where I had a completely dysfunctional relationship with money, how am I going to heal the dysfunctional relationship I have with money? It started with this process of, of going through an inventory, or what we like to call our bag of crap analysis. Now, you and I aren't that clever. We didn't come up with bag of crap analysis on our own. Right. It was something that we witnessed through a client that almost to kind of pay a little respect to her, uh, we decided to name this part of the process after her. Yeah, she was coming in after a very tragic loss in her life and was stuck, had no concept of how to move forward. There were a a multitude of different financial issues to deal with. So what, what was it that you sent her? Before she came in, you sent her a list of something, which is really what this episode today is all about. What was that list? It's what we call our standard checklist. These are all the very traditional, conventional financial documents, your tax return, your brokerage statements, your bank statements, life insurance policies. Now, we're going to go through this slower in a minute, right? Yeah, and all that stuff, your wills, your trusts, all, all that stuff, all that paperwork that defines life financially. So you you asked her to get this all organized and bring it into you. It yes? was, it's pivotal to be able to do some of the financial planning work that we need to from a money perspective. So she comes marching into the office and she's got this big old bag and she comes marching in and she's got a wonderful personality. And she's like, well, here's my bag of crap. <laughs> and she turned it over and emptied it out on the conference room table and Shook it out like a laundry bag. And here we go. And that's how we come up with our bag of crap analysis. And that is where the name came from. Bag of crap analysis. Okay. So so last time, let's let's just slow this down for a second. So last time we introduced the idea of an inventory as being more than just this stuff. Completely. Right. And we've gone through all that. So now we're getting to this point where after we've identified the cornerstones of wealth, now we've actually got to look at the financial resources and come up with a list of things that would be helpful for a conversation like this. Whether whether people come in and see us and do this physically or whether you're sitting at home right now uh, with a friend, with a partner, with a family member, with a spouse about to go through this exercise without us. 
there's a very specific list that we feel is important for you to get your hands on and, and take a look at so that we can go through this financial inventory. And I guess before we even really look at this list, what we're really trying to do, and I, I think this is something that you and I have been very fortunate to embrace, is that you and I started treating our own personal balance sheets, our own personal financial relationship with money as if we were individually a business in and of ourselves. In other words, I looked at Matthew and Amy Grishman's money that comes in and and our whole financial life as a business, Grishman Inc. Sure. We were taught this by a very good friend of ours who made it a point that the smartest families in the world, the wealthiest families in the world, treat their own finances as if they were running it like a business. One of my oldest, dearest friends on the planet, Glenn Thomas. He's a a CPA by trade, but he is so much more than that to his clients and, and his family and loved ones. Well, he's another planner. He's like us in that sense. Oh, absolutely. And he's the one that's helped us with this concept of using traditional financial statements like a balance sheet, like a profit and loss statement, which we're going to talk more about in a second, as simply measuring tools. I think for a lot of people, Matthew, they get overwhelmed at the terminology, overwhelmed at what does the document represent, overwhelmed at am I doing this correctly because there's really been no foundational element for most people. No, I didn't learn this stuff in school. I wasn't these taught things what this are. was. Yeah. I mean, that the first time Glenn said to me, we're going to build a balance sheet for you and Amy. It was oh like, a, did you think it was like a teeter-totter? Oh, I thought he slammed me in the head with a two-by-four. That was one of the, the most painful, overwhelming things to think about, that I would have to go through this exercise of creating a balance sheet for my family. But what I learned is that as big and intimidating as that sounded, it was really quite a, a simple exercise. I mean, what is a balance sheet? A balance sheet is really a snapshot in time of your assets, both current and longer-term assets, and your current and longer-term liabilities. So basically, it's a snapshot of my assets minus my liabilities. And for an individual, you would summarize that by saying that the bottom number, right, the, the number after you take your assets minus your liabilities. So my assets minus my debts yep. equals what? My net worth. Well, that, that sounds simpler. It's simple. So if we simply list out all of our assets and yeah, then we list out- your house worth this, your car is worth this, your 401k is worth this. Minus all of our debts. Your mortgage is this, your credit card is this, your home equity line is this. I'm going to find out what I'm worth. There's a number at the bottom and that number when you subtract them is your net worth. Well, that's helpful. All right, so that's one. So there, there were two. I remember when Glenn did this with me. Yeah, there were two documents he said were critical for someone treating their family balance sheet like it were a business. The balance sheet was one, and the second one he said was a profit and loss statement. Right, that sounds really overwhelming. That 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 was sounds like two you have to four. go up to like the seventh floor and talk to the accounting department and <laughs> exactly exactly. But simplify it for us. What really is profit and loss statement? Goes in, goes out. This is one of my favorite things you say. You, you, the goes ins and goes outs. Well, it, a dear, dear friend and client, Charlie, taught me this one a long time ago. Uh, but you got to measure the goes ins and you got to measure the goes outs. So if I take what I make minus what I spend, what does that give me? Either a profit or a loss. If you're a business, if you're a business. In the case of a household, it is either savings or a deficit. 
Another fancy word for deficit is debt. Debt. Right? Because in a family, if you're spending more than you're making- So I bring in a certain amount of income, more money goes out than what I'm making. You are probably using debt in order to make that happen. What do you mean by that? You are using some form of credit from a family member, a bank, a credit union, a credit card company, where they have extended- a line of credit to you of some kind. You can have a Visa card and it it has a $5,000 limit to it and you're using that credit card and you're carrying a balance on it. Otherwise, I mean, you're going to be bouncing checks, right? If you have no money in the bank and you go to use your debit card or a check, you can't run a deficit because the check's going to bounce. So the only other way to do that would be to accumulate debt. Is the way to, is you're going to accumulate debt, yes. Which obviously I'm for the purposes of having a conversation with you, I'm playing a little bit like I'm not aware. But as we probably remember from the first couple conversations you had, I was the king of debt. Yeah. Because I, I really didn't think in terms of how much money goes in versus how much money goes outs. I just knew that I had a paycheck that came in on the first of the month. I never really looked at it. I never took this kind of profit and loss inventory back then. I would just take my credit card and swipe it up a storm, charging up a storm, just assuming that I had the money to pay for it. And, and that's really part of the exercise here for anybody that's willing to roll up their sleeves and dive into this, is you actually have to take the time and see where you're at. You just can't categorically assume there's always going to be enough. And sure, there may be months where you run a deficit, but you got to be able to pay that off somehow, particularly if in money terminology, you'd like to see your net worth grow. Why would you want to see your net worth grow? Well, because the other cornerstones of what we've been talking about, you have desires. You have desired outcomes. You have goals. You have objectives. You have things that you'd like to accomplish, experiences you'd like to have, maybe even some stuff that you want to buy. And you need to be able to have a growing net worth, right? Have more savings, have more cash, whatever whatever labels you're comfortable with. Come on, dude. That's a lot easier said than done, though. I mean, this this was something that... I battled with for years. I mean, I remember my very first job out of college making 25,000 bucks a year, always saying to myself, hey, if I could just make a couple more bucks every month and get myself oh, a little breathing yeah. room, right? Life would be fine. But it almost seems like, and I know you've experienced this in your office as I have in mine, that we meet with plenty of people who make plenty of money. They just have no idea where it goes every month. Right. I had a person recently in my office who said, I make $26,000 a month net after taxes. And at the end of the month, I'm always somewhere around zero. I have no idea where it goes. That was me. Can you repeat that, please? I had $26,000 come in at the beginning of the month. And by the end of the month, it was somewhere near zero. And I had no idea where it went. I hear and that we, statement right. more now than I ever have in my entire 25-year career in this business. I think it's fair to say we have heard that with $2,600 a month. We've heard it with $26,000 a month. We've heard it with $260,000 a month. Yes, we have. It, it almost doesn't matter how much money people make. That is probably the number one thing we hear from people when they come in and see us. I make plenty of money for whatever my needs are, but yet I don't know where it goes every month. Not in a defensive way. I'm not trying to protect the innocent here, 
But so often they are very busy professionals living sure. very busy lives. Living two inches in front of their nose. Going 100 miles an hour. They've got travel responsibilities with their work. Maybe they've got kids. The kids have got a bunch of stuff going on. They're busy, 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 busy. We live in a very fast-paced society. We are constantly bombarded on social media with what our, what our friends are doing and where they're going. And you get the competitive juices. And there's no time. Well, people, that- People have succumbed to all of the other pressures in life and lost a little discipline. And that's part of the muscle that we want to try to help people build is to rebuild their discipline muscle to take the time to sit down and go through some of these processes, some of these exercises. Well, and that's one of the coolest things, at least for me, in this journey of financial sobriety is that it's not about doing it perfectly. It's about making some progress each time we attempt to get a little better at it. And one of the things I am most grateful for Glenn Thomas for teaching me how to do was how to figure out the conundrum that comes with that question of where does it go every month? He gave me that tool. And what Glenn taught me how to do was how to sit down first and foremost and create that balance sheet, how to take an actual snapshot in time of all the stuff that I owned, all the financial stuff that I owned, minus all the financial stuff that I owed other people to come up with this number we call a net worth. I think for a lot of people, the sheer thought of doing that scares the bejesus out of them. Oh, it scared it scared the heck out of me the it's first time I did it. intimidating. I don't know where to start. I don't know how to do this. I have a lot of regret over money behaviors, right? A lot of the things that we've talked about in prior episodes, now we're putting it down on paper. And sure. I, I really want to encourage people to just simply, there's, there's no rights or wrongs here, right? I mean, it's no different than a diet and wanting to lose weight or whatever habits you're trying to correct. You have to start somewhere. So sit down, get out a piece of paper, your spreadsheet or however you like to take notes and start writing this stuff down. The good, the bad, the ugly. Let's take a minute here to actually figure out from the balance sheet exercise, what are the key categories that people, that that you and I, when you and I sit down and we're analyzing our own balance sheet, what are the numbers that we're actually pulling off of our statements and actually putting down on the piece of paper? Sure. So cash in the bank. Yeah, bank assets. You got CDs, you got cash in the bank, you got cash in the safe, you got cash under the mattress or a leaky floorboard. Right. Any, any, well, I would say any kind of bank assets, yeah. right? Anything that you would own at the bank, which like you said, could be a checking account, a savings account, a money market account, a CD, anything that you hold at the bank. That's one category, bank assets. I would then jump to any kind of a brokerage asset. So an investment Any asset. kind of an investment asset, whether it be a retirement asset in a 401k, 403b, 457 an individual retirement account, a Roth IRA, all the you know, SEP account, all those fancy names for retirement money. All right, hang on there, Speedy. Let's slow this down. All right, so a, a regular brokerage account, a retirement account like a 401k. Mm-hmm. If you're a teacher, it might be called a 403b. If you work for the fire department, it might be called a 457, but they're kind of all the same, right? Yep. Uh, small business owners might have a SEP right. or a simple IRA. If you've saved money for kids in college or for college one day, it may be a UTMA. Uh, a UTMA or a, a, uniform, a uniform transfer to minors is a 
older version of the college savings accounts from 20 years ago. Okay. A 529 plan you may have heard of. Okay. As another bucket, right? Another account by which to save money for college. Your IRA, your individual retirement account, or a Roth IRA. These would all be considered investment accounts. Exactly. All right. How about things like insurance and annuity policies? Yeah, those are going to be in some kind of an account, but you may have an, a cash accumulation policy that's a life insurance policy. So a life insurance policy that actually that has builds, some cash that value in it. builds cash value okay. in it. You do, we, may, do we need to look at policies that are that are what's called term life insurance? Are no, those important, important for balance sheet? Not for balance sheet because they don't carry any underlying value. They only kick in in the event of the unthinkable. Right. All right. Well, and we'll get into those down the road a little more. Annuities are going to have a value just like any of your other brokerage accounts. That would go in this section. Then we're going to jump to things like real estate. The market value of your home. What does that mean? That means go on Zillow, go on Redfin, go on one of the websites that helps give what we you can that sell value. It for today. What do you realistically think you could sell it for? Okay. If you have rental properties, if you own other real estate beyond your home, maybe you have a vacation home you inherited, maybe you have a vacation home you bought, that would go in this section. Next down the list would be, do you own any land? Do you have any ownership in a business? So for us, we put on our personal balance sheets the you know, the proportional value of what we think Gebhardt Group is worth in the marketplace of financial advisory practices. So business assets would be business included assets. here as well. And that's a fungible number. I mean, that's not necessarily an easy number to define because it's not publicly valued on a daily basis like stocks and mutual funds and things like that. So, I mean, just to kind of sum this up. So if, if we're going to make a list for the purposes of a balance sheet where we get to calculate our net worth, we're going to want to start with all the assets we have at the bank. Then we want to move to all of our different investment assets that could include retirement accounts and non-retirement accounts. Then we're going to look at all of our different insurance and annuity policies, ones that have cash value inside of them. We're going to look at our different real estate holdings and our different business holdings. And that, when we add all of those values up, that should give us an idea of the total of our assets. Bingo. Did I miss anything? Bingo. For the okay. purposes of what we're trying to do here, perfect. One other comment on writing down all your assets. Maybe if you're just a beginner and this is all new and you're just coming into the workforce or you're starting over from scratch or whatever the circumstances are, don't have any judgment on yourself. Don't have... I That's spent, so important. I spent so much time trying to compare myself to where I thought I should be by a certain age. Where the hell did that come from? That came from the Joneses. Well, it came from your own ego wanting to keep up with the Joneses. Yeah. And uh, there's no Joneses I'm picking on here. It's the, you know, the euphemism that we all talk about. Well, come on, dude. You know, I mean, I didn't want to keep up with the Joneses. I wanted to be Mr. Jones. Right. And it was all ego-driven stuff. And thankfully, we've got some podcast episodes built around that very concept right there. But you, you're, you're hitting on something really, really important. When we look at this snapshot of the balance sheet and we're looking at our assets, you got to start somewhere. And we can't judge where we think we're supposed to be based on where we really are. This could be the first time we actually get to sit down and measure progress in arrears. Have we ever done this exercise before? If this is the first time you're ever sitting down and doing a personal balance sheet, then that's huge progress. If it's the hundredth time you've done this exercise, let's do it without judgment. 
Fantastic. Let's do it purely for measuring and, as Glenn would say, gathering data. Yes. And now that we're not judging ourselves, let's look at the part of this balance sheet that I know for me, I always- the most judging. Oh, this is where I judged myself completely when I had to look at this. And that's the debt side of the balance sheet. So also known as liabilities. Right. Liabilities and debt are synonymous with one another. So we've looked at our assets. We've added them all up. Now we've got to look at our debts and add all of those up. So this is anybody or any institution that you owe. The first place and the easiest place to start would be if you're a homeowner. If you're a homeowner with a mortgage, the bank that carries your mortgage. That's probably your biggest debt holder. That's likely your biggest debt holder. You may have a credit card or two that you owe. You may have a home equity line of credit, also known as a HELOC, just an abbreviation for home equity line of credit. First thing would be our real estate debt. That's generally our biggest. So we look at the different types of real estate debt that we could have, right? You mentioned a first mortgage. You mentioned a second mortgage, possibly a home equity line of credit. What's next? Credit card debt, consumer debt. Consumer debt. Student loan debt. Uh, Maybe you've borrowed money from a family member to help you start a business, help you get through a pinch in life. Sure. So, I mean, the debt's pretty straightforward. There's not a lot of categories. It's pretty much any person, place, or thing you owe money to. Please don't stop because this gets scary. Please don't stop because this makes you feel uncomfortable. Or you're afraid you might not like the net worth number that you see. Yeah. So when we go through this exercise, is it normal to have a negative net worth? I mean, what what if the number's negative? What if I have more debt than I have assets? Breathe. <laughs> Good advice. Breathe again and just simply acknowledge where you're at. I can tell you in my own life, and I'm a financial advisor, I have had a negative net worth. It doesn't feel good. I was pretty panicked about it. This is in the 2008 mess where my wife and I ended up carrying two mortgages a mile and a half apart for the better part of 51 weeks. There's a lot to that story that we'll unpack at a different time, but I had a negative net worth because I had two big mortgages and the value of the homes were dropping rapidly thanks to the crisis in 07, 08, 09. As was the value of your business. As was the value of my business, as was the value of my retirement and savings accounts. So everything was in a 45-degree decline, looking straight into the ground, and I had a negative net worth. And your debt was staying steady. And my debt staying steady. Please don't stop because this gets hard. Or give up. Well, you can't, you can't, I mean, sure, you can give up, right? World's full of people that have given up. You're not listening to this because you want to give up. You, right. You're listening to this because you want solutions, you want education, you want to get better, you want to get through this. So having a negative net worth isn't the end of the road. That's that's kind of where I'm trying to get us. It's not a negative, excuse me, it's not the end of the road because God bless, I had still had income to pay the bills. I never missed a mortgage payment on either house. I never missed a payroll to my employees. I never missed any kind of a debt payment. So even though you were upside down, that's a term we use if you have more debt than you have assets. So even though you were upside down, life was able to continue. Life continued, but it wasn't fun. Let's be clear. Sure. I mean, it wasn't vacations and golf rounds at places that cost real money. It was, it was, a, it was a beautiful lesson in my own financial sobriety to simplify life to, hey, where can Beth and I go? Where can the family and I go very affordably 
for a fun afternoon. Hey, let's go to the park. Let's bring our own sandwiches. Let's bring our own water in our water bottles, right? It's not easy. And I commend you for having the courage to go through this exercise, write this stuff down and, and stare it in the face. And I would also- You were looking right in the mirror- at some of the hardest stuff people have to look at financially. Well, and let, let's also talk about the other side of the coin. What happens if we write down all of our assets and write down all of our liabilities and we're sitting there staring at a net worth that shocks us? It's so much bigger than we would have even expected. Part of the beauty of that comes from most people not taking the time to do this exercise. So quite often we meet with clients and when we do this through our planning process and we show them their net worth number, they go, huh? You're kidding. That there's no, there's no way that's my net worth because they're shocked at how big the number is. Where I want to go with this is, is I see that big number on the wall like I did in 2011, right? I had hit bottom the first time in my life financially in 2005. Six years later, I'm looking at a number of just under 1.6 million bucks. And for a moment, I thought I'd arrived. Oh, good. I'm all done. I don't need to do this anymore. I don't need to pay attention to this anymore. Look at me. Interesting. So I guess the reason I'm sharing that is the other side of this is we get a surprise on the upside. We're happy with what we see. We've got a net worth that we feel really good about. Does that mean we're all done and we don't need to do the rest of this? Oh, far from it. Because that money won't last if you don't do these other exercises. Well, and let's also remember that financial sobriety is about a journey. It's not about an arrival. We never get there. Right. There is no there there as a friend of mine says. You may reach a milestone. You may reach a, a peak or a pinnacle on one of the mountains on your journey. That may be in a very conventional, traditional way, retirement, mm -hmm. right? So people are going to tell us they, they want to draw a line in the sand at 62 and they would like to be retired. Right. One of, the, one of my favorite things that, that you taught me was your definition that we have subsequently adopted at Gebhardt Group of being retired, could you take a moment and share that with everybody? Oh, sure. I mean, retirement's just really changed from looking at it from our, our folks and our, our grandparents' standpoint. It's very different today. For us, it's really more about going from have-to mode to want-to mode. Yeah, what does that mean? What I mean is if you're working or whatever it is you're doing in life, you're doing it now because you want to, not because you have to. Not you, because you have, just to pick this apart, not because you have to financially. Right. Financially, I don't have to make money to pay my bills. I do it because I want to, because I have gotten to this point of financial independence in life. That's what retirement is really all about, is having the financial independence to go from have-to mode to want-to mode. It's so powerful. Is it fair to say the reason we're going through these exercises and unpacking the concept of a balance sheet, unpacking the concept of a profit and loss statement is to get to this, absolutely to get to this mythical, magical place. Yeah, that's the Shangri-La. And the reason that I say in 2011, when we got where we got with the amount of money we had from a net worth standpoint, as easy as it would have been to say, I'm all done, I don't need to look at this anymore. The next piece of this, the idea of looking at a profit and loss statement, the goes ins and goes outs, that could be the cause of destroying that asset base that I had built if I'm not smart about the goes-ins and goes-outs, right. if I'm not aware of how much money is coming in versus how much money is coming out. 
This is why I encourage you, irregardless of whether we have a negative net worth or a surprisingly positive net worth, that doesn't mean the end of anything. It just simply means the beginning of gathering data to give me behaviors for going forward about how I treat my money and the relationship that I have with it. So let's talk about P&L. One other thing I want to add to what you're talking about. So this concept of seeing your net worth number and being pleasantly or, or over-surprised right, at the number. I can't tell you the number of occasions with clients when they've seen that number and it surprised them what they say next. Which is? I don't feel that wealthy. Oh. <laughs> I, don't, I don't feel as though we live a lifestyle that assimilates with that number. We don't do this. We don't do that. We don't spend this. We don't spend that. And yet we have this net worth. Yeah, that's how you got there. That's exactly one of the reasons you got there and why this number is surprising and why we think it's a mindful exercise to go through this process. Because even though you may not feel that wealthy, that number is representing the accumulation of your savings efforts and the opposite, your, non, your non-spending habits that is helping you build this net worth. We just want you to be mindful of why are you doing it. Well, that's the essence of financial sobriety. It's changing what it means to feel wealthy. Right. Our society has- That was a has, lob ball. That yeah, was a little our, lob, lob for you. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I'm about to hit it out of the park. <laughs> the idea of feeling wealthy for way too long in our society has been about how much stuff I have and how much I can show it to the world. Feeling wealthy was about the size of my house, the cost of my car, the number of Rolex watches that I had, right? For me, I'm I'm not defining this for anyone else but me, but yet I learned it from the society that was around me. And financial sobriety has been about a process of changing how I feel about being wealthy. Make sense? Keep going. Well, that's the essence of this. That's why we're doing this. So if you're listening to this now and you're thinking to yourself, like Jim just shared, you know, the way you shared about how clients come in and they don't feel as wealthy as the number that's in front of them, that's what this process is all about. It's about creating this congruence between your net worth and actually feeling wealthy. That's an SAT word. It is. And that congruence is, it's going to go through the whole form wealth formation process, right? That congruency is going to align all these all these concepts together so that that's what's underpinning the money. Yes. Otherwise, the money's not going to make it. Yes, absolutely. So let's talk about P&L. Sure. Profit and loss statement. Yeah. So this, this is, if we're going to sit with a family and we're going to help a family run their family finances as if they were a successful business, we've accomplished the balance sheet exercise. Now we've got to look at profit and loss. This is pretty simple. Right? This is the goes-ins and goes-outs, as we say. So what are all the different sources for the profit side of this exercise? Income, baby. Income. Income. So how do you make paycheck? money? Paycheck? Paycheck at work? Paycheck. Rental income? Rental income. So if we own Social real estate? Social security, alimony, the loan that you gave somebody and they're paying you back. Whatever deposits are coming into your bank accounts. So very, any, very simply put. Any source of income could be... Pay, commissions, anything you get from work. It could be any investment income you receive. Sure, dividends. Yeah, you might own some stock that pays pays dividends or CDs at the bank that pay interest. Well, Well, very little interest. A long time ago they did. But maybe we've got a lot of CDs that pay us a little bit of interest. Okay, good. So all of these different sources of income, that's what we want to account for on the income side. Yeah, on the goes-ins. On the goes-ins side. 
Okay, talk to me about the goes out side. The goes outs is where does the money go, right? Every time you click Amazon Prime and you and you buy something, and I know I'm certainly guilty of that, that's it goes out, as is the car payment, as is the mortgage, as is your property taxes, a homeowner's association. So let's break this down into Utilities. some categories. Yeah, Let, yeah let's break go. this down into some categories. Yeah. So you and I have always talked with our clients about these five primary foundational living expenses that yeah, everything can be categorized into. Let's, let's repeat that. So the way we think of this for our clients is we think of it as foundational expenses. These are the things that keep the lights on for your family. Right. These are the have-tos. So first and foremost is all expenses related to housing. What does it cost us to live in our home? These could be mortgage expenses, utility expenses, HOAs, home repairs, property taxes. Right. Everything to do with how I live. The second category is my food. So all the food that goes in the fridge, that's category number two. So we've got housing, we've got food. Category number three, clothing on my back. Can't walk out the door without clothing on this day and age. Category four, transportation. How do I move about this country? How do I get to and from work? How do I get to and from visiting my parents on the East Coast? How do I get to and from visiting you in Lafayette? Right. Sometimes I take the train. Fifth would be communication. How do I communicate with the world? Do I have a cell phone? Do I have a landline? Do I have a fax number? So we've got five categories for foundational expenses. And technically, there's a sixth. Healthcare? Healthcare. That sixth category would be healthcare. The reason I we sometimes leave that out of the conversation is because if you work, that can be deducted from your paycheck, your healthcare costs. But nowadays, it seems like there's more and more out-of-pocket costs. So we should probably make that a sixth foundational expense category all by itself because there is enough after paycheck gets deposited money going out to pay for that stuff. So those are the foundational expenses. Yeah, those are your six foundational expenses. Fair to say those are pretty much fixed costs. They're That's pretty another, much fixed costs. Another way to think of this is the the fixed costs that you carry every month. So whether you do whether you leave your house or not, you're going to have these basic underlying costs every month. Right. Now we shift to discretionary. Discretionary a simpler way would be to say the fun money. Yeah, th- so this is money that could change every month. These are discretionary expenses, things like going out to dinner, purchasing gifts, traveling, going on vacation, caring for pets. A health club membership. In my case, playing some golf. Absolutely. In your case, playing some tennis. Absolutely. Those are numbers in your monthly budget that may change, and they are discretionary because if times get tough and you just went through the balance sheet exercise and you have a negative balance sheet, you have a negative net worth, you're probably not doing a lot of that right now. You're just trying to get through this. Yeah, the discretionary spending is is really kind of the low-hanging fruit of where we get to start adjusting budget numbers for people. That's usually where we start. When we get into the foundational expenses, that's where it can get a little bit more challenging. So when we're looking at a profit and loss statement, we have all the different sources of income coming into one side, and then the two main categories of expenses going out on the other side – one being the foundational expenses, which are our fixed kind of have-to costs, and then our discretionary expenses, which are fun want-to costs. Yeah, but I'm just sitting here. I'm feeling really overwhelmed to have to track. I mean, there's six of us in my family. That could be hundreds of transactions 
that I've got to sit there and and write down? Or I mean, I feel I feel overwhelmed at the exercise of of trying to track this. So what what am I going to do? Yeah, I think the easiest way that we found. I mean, you and I work with a fantastic financial planning software that integrates bank accounts into the software so we can actually help our clients with the budgeting of the different categories of how they spend money. Fortunately, for people who aren't wealth management clients of ours, there is lots of software out there that you can access. My favorite is called mint.com. Ooh. Mint little is, plug. Oh, Mint is a fantastic software that lets you aggregate all of your different financial accounts into one main hub where you can pull in all of this data where you really don't have to do a lot of heavy lifting. I know a lot of individual banks. Uh, we right now do our banking with one of the, kind of the big national banks. And despite some of my frustration with working with one of the big national banks, their online technology for breaking down my expenses are fantastic. So I imagine that from listening to this podcast, you probably have a relationship with a bank that provides some of this data already for you to break these expenses up into different categories. But if you don't, I recommend signing up for a software like Mint.com or another software in that world that aggregates all of this for you. I've used Quicken, and candidly, I've used it on and off over the years. And part of what Matthew is saying here is that these solutions are going to be automated. This is going to download automatically and dump it into a spreadsheet or a format that you can look at. Our dear friend Glenn is probably listening, and he's going he's going a little stir crazy right now <laughs> because the thought of this being an automated process to him makes his skin crawl. Yeah, and he has developed over the years an extraordinary discipline muscle and a process around a certain day of the month, sitting down with the bank statements and ticking through this thing one entry at a time. I have had success and failure at that very exercise myself. So my discipline muscle is somewhere between developed and completely non-existent Hmm. because it's so intimidating. Sure. What it does, however, when I go through the process, is it quickly reminds you of how many goes outs there can be and most likely will be if you don't pay attention. Absolutely. The, The best part of what Glenn teaches us with this is that irregardless of how you gather your data, whether you, you do got it, it right. whether you do it manually, thank you, whether you do it manually the way Glenn does it, or you do it on a more automated basis the way I've started doing it, where all the data gets downloaded directly from my bank, the process is just to look at this as data. We are gathering data based on past behaviors so that we can empower ourselves to make different choices going forward. That's what the essence of this exercise is all about. So take all the spilkes, as you've taught me. Is that did I get that right? I this is yes, spilkes is my favorite Yiddish word for anxiety. Okay. So take all the spilkes that you're feeling over looking at these transactions and looking at the stupid Amazon Prime stuff you bought at ten o'clock at night on an impulse buy and all of the other transactions and let it go. Let it go. We're just it's gathering not, it's data. Not, it's not serving you to beat yourself up because you you want to make different choices. And as Matthew said, as Glenn would say, if he was on this podcast, we're just gathering data so that we can make different choices moving forward. Now, the question becomes, what do I do with this data once I have it? And this is where we're going to start to wrap up this week's episode. The first thing you do with this data, if the balance sheet doesn't look the way you like it, if the money going out is more than you would like it, we start with the discretionary expenses. Where can you start making big changes in the money that comes in versus the money that goes out? 
And there are going to be some glaringly obvious choices. For me, those were simple. The $260 a month DirecTV bill was an obvious choice. Buh. Bye. We eliminated a lot of the extra Bye-bye. channels, and we brought that bill down under 100 bucks a month. Yeah, the other thing you can do is you can call them and pretend you're going to leave. Well, you're getting to the good stuff. Oh, We're not sorry. there yet. Okay. We're not there yet. I'll stop. So we've got to chunk out these big expenses first, okay. right? If we need to make changes, this is where we start. Put on a sweater. Gonna, yeah, we're, we're going to have a lot more follow-up with this conversation, but it's cutting that big stuff out. Then when we feel like we've cut everything out that we can possibly cut out, we go into what I like to call shaving ounces mode. Shaving ounces was a concept I learned from my cousin David, backpacking in Yosemite National Park. I love this story. Cousin David was is an avid backpacker. He's a through hiker on the Appalachian Trail. And I'll never forget our first night in camp around the Hetch Hetchy Reservoir. I watched him take out his toothbrush and snap the handle off and throw it in the fire. Then as he started reading a book around the campfire, I'd watch him rip pages out of the book and throw the pages in the fire. I looked at him. I said, what the hell are you doing? Well, you're ruining a good book. He said, no, no, I'm shaving ounces. Well, tell me more about that. And what David explained to me was when he spent six months hiking the Appalachian Trail, he started with 52 pounds on his back. And by having this focus of shaving ounces every day, by the time he got to the Carolinas, he had shaved 10 pounds off his pack just from shaving ounces. Wow. So when you started to talk about how you can call the cable company and the phone company. Yeah, I got, and a, play little, these, I got a little excited. Yeah, and play these little tricks on them, whether you call up as a new customer or you simply call up as a longtime customer asking them whatever specials they have. You never know. They might be able to cut your bill by 10 or 15 bucks. It doesn't sound like a lot, but if you take on that mentality of shaving ounces over the course of a year, you could shave substantial substantial, meaningless expenses from your budget that don't serve the cornerstones of your true wealth. That's what you do with this. That's what we do with this data. Once we get it from a client, we sit down with them and figure out how to make adjustments based on the big obvious stuff first, and then we get into shave and ounces. I love it. There's there's one other little tip or trick that uh, Beth and I have been doing for years now, which if you're wondering, you know, how do you curtail food expenses? or the household, some of the basic expenses to run the household. Mm -hmm. We put a fixed, we opened up a separate bank account with a separate debit card, and it's called the house account. Hmm. We put a fixed amount of money there at the beginning of the month, and that's what Beth uses to uh, go food shopping. All the major grocery stores, outlet stores. Your Costco's, your your Target's. Your Costco's, your Target's, all of those places to run the household. Sure. That way, when we get to the end of the month... If it ain't there, it ain't there. That's a very conscious number that she can see very easily and know where we're at. And you go raid the fridge and you go make it stretch. Oh, we've been there before. We've definitely been there before. That's, are, a, that's a great idea. These are just a couple of tips and tricks that you and I have used that are designed to, to help you move this thing forward a little bit and not get stuck in the the uncomfortable spilkus of what all this stuff represents, right? It's all, it's all numbers. It's all likely going to have emotions that are tied to that. But we want you to really have no judgment on yourself for what sins you may have had in the past with money, what debts you may have collected, where you are in life economically, and use these concepts, use these exercises, the writing exercises from our past episodes, the financial kind of writing exercise here of getting the numbers down on a piece of paper to help you be able to move this thing forward. So we've talked today about running your family finances like a successful business, which requires 
two documents, a balance sheet, which shows your assets minus your debts to come up with our net worth. We have a second document called a profit and loss statement that in effect analyzes all the goes ins versus the goes outs, all the income coming in, all the expenses going out, and it gives us a number. We either have a profit or a surplus, or we have a deficit. This is a great starting point for gathering data so that we can make choices going forward. And in our next episode, we're actually going to push all of these dollars and cents aside. We're going to take all of this financial data, and we're going to park it on the side for a minute, and we're going to get back up to 30,000 feet and really start talking about how you create a vision for what your money life is going to look like as we kind of ponder life 2.0, life 3.0, life 4.0. Don't worry. We're going to come back to this data. We're going to show you how to use it. Today, we just gave you some ideas on how to get that started, but next time, we're going to really get up to the top of the mountain and really create a vision for what tomorrow could look like. I can't wait. Well, I would say that's a wrap for this episode of Financial Sobriety. If you like what you heard, leave us a review and be sure to subscribe. And don't forget to check out our website, yourfinancialsobriety.com, for more information and upcoming events, like our two-day live event that we'll be hosting right here in Sacramento, California in October of 2020. Thanks again for listening today, here to help you find more clarity, confidence, and capability along your journey into financial sobriety. I'm Matthew Grishman. And I'm Jim Gebhardt. We'll be back in a couple of weeks, but until then, be intentional with your money. Jim Gebhardt is a registered representative of and securities offered through Brokers International Financial Services, LLC, member SIPC. Jim Gebhardt and Matthew Grishman are investment advisor representatives of Gebhardt Group Incorporated, a registered investment advisor. Brokers International Financial Services, LLC, and Gebhardt Group Incorporated are not affiliated. The opinions in this podcast are for informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or investment recommendations. To determine which investments or financial advice may be appropriate for you, consult a financial advisor prior to investing. Any reference to market performance is based on historical information and there is no expressed or implied guarantee of future performance.